Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook and I'm joined as always by James Moore and Charlie Ackleshare. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 per week. You can read all of our articles on Spurs and so much more. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod and sign up for just £1 per week. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. The third international break of the season is almost over. Uh, We are on the brink of four months of uninterrupted club football. Uh, Tottenham will have, at a very minimum, 25 more games until the next international break. Um, Charlie, you must be looking forward to a a proper run of games after this kind of very, very stop-start first bit of the season. Yeah, it has felt a bit like that, hasn't it? Um, You know, I think it's been, what, like a few league games and then then a break. yeah, I think you know most people who most people care more about club football, don't they, than international. Certainly outside of major tournaments. So, I think the international break can feel like a bit of a drag. So, um, but yeah, looking, looking and also coming back with such a good one on Saturday against Man City. Um, yeah, it should be fun. And and you know this period is, I'm just so curious and excited to see what happens because it's such um, it'll be such a revealing um, six or seven games that Spurs have coming up. Yeah, we're going to learn a lot, aren't we, James? Yeah, I think so. I mean, as we were saying, I think last week, these these games will really tell you where Spurs are. Not just the ones against City and Liverpool, but also you know teams like Wolves and Leicester. They're, they're going to be real challenges. Um, and, and I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suggest that if Spurs are, you know, in the top two or three at the end of that run, you know, once they get to Christmas, I think you can afford to well I can afford to be very excited you two can afford to be very professional and it all starts with it all starts with Manchester City on Saturday afternoon or Saturday 5.30 at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium um, I think this is probably the Spurs' biggest game of the season so far isn't it like I know they've had I know they've had United away but that's it feels like a little bit of a free hit even though it obviously went very well for them and they did have Chelsea but that was in the, the Carabao Cup but it's also a game in which Spurs have got quite good record like the last time City went to Tottenham uh in the Premier League back in February so was it February so technically this year but it feels yeah obviously you know for for very obvious reasons feels like a completely different world yeah second Sunday the 2nd of February um Spurs won 2-0 uh I thought that was a game famous for being uh Bergwijn scoring that fantastic goal but memorable in another sense because it was such a triumph of the kind of Jose Mourinho way of playing like they didn't have the ball they sat back they soaked up quite a lot of you know they took a lot of pressure from City and then scored their opportunities and it went perfectly um Charlie can you do you expect Spurs to play a similar way this time and would you can you foresee a similar result 
few things. Firstly, as well, this game is the first time uh, Spurs have played on a Saturday uh, this season. And given oh, it coming wow. up to December, it's kind of crazy. Wow. But obviously, the Europa League has skewed that. Yeah. Um, so I would say, firstly, on that game in February, um, I think I mentioned this before in the pod and some don't like this metric, but the XG, among other things, that game was massively in City's favour. Like That was a game that, you know, nine times out of ten, you would have expected them to win. I don't think it's um, it, it's a kind of sustainable model with which to beat them because if you're giving up that level of chances, you, you probably won't keep getting away with it. Um, also, it was slightly... The way... Jose set up that day was slightly a consequence of there not being Harry Kane, um, you know, and he had to find a way to try and win without Kane, which, you know, was a struggle um, for big parts of that run. That that was the standout win, well, probably of the season, but certainly of that period. So I don't, I don't think Spurs will approach it in quite the same way because I think they're in a far stronger position now. You know, the fact that Kane and Son are firing to the extent that they are, um, Spurs obviously second in the league. I'm, I'm not suggesting they're going to be gung ho at all. Obviously they'll be they'll be disciplined, but I think it will be. I feel like they'll be setting traps for City on this occasion. You know they they'll invite them forward, but in the hope and in the confidence they can spring them on the counter. Whereas that game in February was more backs to the wall, just you know clearing your lines, desperate defending, and then they got that red card out of nothing. Um, the Zinchenko one on Winks. Um, and then the game really hinged on that point and Spurs were were brilliant thereafter. But I, I don't think it will be quite so, um, yeah, backs to the wall. I think it will be more controlled. Um, but it will be really interesting in seeing how City, um, you know, City cope with that because they have had some of these. I, I say that, you know, it's unsustainable um, letting City have a lot of chances, but it feels like there have been quite a lot of hard luck you know, from a City perspective, stories against Spurs in recent years. I mean, you know, that 2-2 game um, at the start of last season as well was a game which City, I think they came off it thinking how they hadn't won that. Obviously, the 4-3 in the Champions League, they thought they should have won by the margin that they needed. Um, so, yeah, it will it will be really interesting, but I, I don't think it will be such a bombardment uh, from City like it felt. Uh, on that day back in February, partly because they're not as good as they were then. Um, and it's encouraging to think how much the gap has closed then because even though Spurs won the game, um, you know, they did it in such a way that more resembled, you know, a team that was a lot worse nicking a result. Whereas they they could genuinely, they could take City on um, and they could, you know, give them what's more of a kind of Mourinho lesson, you know, proper counter, uh, counter-attacking display. So yeah, lots, lots to look forward to. Really intriguing game. It feels like Spurs haven't lost to City for ages. Because obviously there was the... Because the that 4-3 felt like a win, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. And then there was the league game a few days after that that they lost 1-0 and actually no one really cared. Well, Spurs, I don't think really cared about by that stage. So, uh, yeah, it kind of feels like the last one they actually lost was that, that one at Wembley, the 1-0 at Wembley where the pitch was the absolutely awful pitch, dreadful. Yeah. Straight Sterling. after the NFL game. Yeah, and Sterling scored and Lamella missed a very good yeah. chance in the second half. But that, that kind of feels like the last game that, that I, I kind of had any emotional investment in that they lost against City. And obviously that's not really the case. Yeah, so that, it's funny you should say that because from a, from a City perspective... Here we go. The, sorry. Um, from a City perspective, the, um, the Phil Foden 1-0 game in April 2019 was incredibly tense because City were trying to close mm. out mm. the Premier League title. And they... Uh, 
you know, they'd just gone out of the Champions League. So there was such a strong sense around this of like, well, City have to win this because so they, they have to hold off Liverpool. And because uh, that, that was when Liverpool were like winning these insane, like last minute turnaround games, like the famous Newcastle game. And Foden scored after five minutes. And then the next 85 minutes, Spurs were kind of relaxed because it didn't massively matter to them. They had the Champions League to focus on. And yet for City, that game was absolute agony. And Spurs nearly scored. There were a few times where it looked like Spurs were going to score an equaliser. And if Spurs had scored an equaliser, then Liverpool would have won the league. Mm. Um, so from a City perspective, that game was really, really different. But, um, it, but we'll, I want to, sorry, I want to come back to City, City Spurs nostalgia. There's tons and tons of stuff to get into, which we can get into later on. But if we just keep, keep focus on this game, I think that I think Charlie, you're right that. City City just aren't as good as they were a year ago. I actually think City are substantially worse than they were even back in February. And that means that I'm quite... So I said that on the City podcast I went on the other day and I said I think Spurs are much more likely to win this time than they were the last time. And since then I've had all these City fans tweeting me telling me that I'm being too negative. But if you watch City play so far this year, for me one of the distinctive things about them is that they can't do it for 90 minutes. Like They're actually a little bit like... They're actually a little bit like Spurs were a year ago or more than a year ago in Pochettino's final half season because the players just look a little bit fed up with the manager and um, they can't, you know, they'll have a good half an hour here or there and then they'll fall away. Like that happened against Leeds, it happened to a lesser extent against Arsenal, it happened against Liverpool, it happened against Leicester. So I think if Spurs can, if Spurs can kind of hold on to it or if Spurs can like keep their head above water in the periods when City are playing well, I think I'll definitely have opportunities because if you look at how City defend, which is, you know, on the halfway line, and I don't think that the defence is especially bad because I think Diaz has been a really good signing, but there will definitely be moments where I think Kane and Son will be able to get in, will, will be able to get in there. Um, so Charlie, I think it's, I think everything is, everything is all set up for Tottenham. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting that uh, what James was talking about, the kind of perception versus the reality because it's weird to think that in 2018-19 City did beat Spurs three times across that season and they did the double over them the previous year um, but yeah then more recently Spurs took four points off City last season yeah I, I mean I, I I do think there's an opportunity there I mean is Aguero going to be fit Jack? Will he play? Because that, uh, makes, a, that I, makes a big difference doesn't it? Yeah City have massively have massively missed Aguero I think Aguero is out at the moment I don't think he's back yeah yeah i mean he has he has been it was just whether he'd be back but i mean obviously jesus is is good but um yeah i i think i think they do have a, a good chance i mean i guess it'll be interesting to see as well how guardiola approaches it um you know he has had a habit maybe in certainly in champions league games of a, we you know we we feel he's overcomplicated things i wonder kind of how he approaches this game obviously him and Mourinho, as we'll touch on have a have a huge history um but it does feel like a chance and it would be such a statement victory. Um, you know, I think that the only stick really to beat Spurs with so far this season, you know, given they're a second, is that they have had a fairly gentle run of fixtures. But obviously if they were to, you know, to win this game against the team that finished second last year and won it, won the title of the previous two seasons, that would be a massive statement. Also, just looking at the Spurs team from that 2-0 win in February, the Spurs team is much better now. Like they had Tanganga left back that day. They had Winks, Lacelso, and Delhi in the midfield, and they had Son, Bergwijn, and Lucas as the, as the front three. And now this time they're going to have they're going to have Kane back. They've obviously got Hoyberg in now. 
They're going to have probably Bale Reguilon potentially. left back. Bale potentially. A fit and effective Ndombele, who's a completely different player from the one who came on with 20 minutes left of that particular game. So did, like, did create first, Son's goal beautifully on that Yes, day. yeah, he did. That was a really good part. That was a really well-weighted pass, wasn't it? Yeah. That was a good shout. But um, it's just like a much better Spurs team. And I think a Spurs team that is more capable of probably soaking up the pressure when City have got the ball and then also I think more importantly of like killing City on the break and mm. that's why I'm quite bullish about Spurs' prospects for this game. Well I'll be interested to see whether or not uh, Bale starts again or whether Lamella comes back in because uh, Lamella is fit again isn't he? Now he's back isn't he? Hopefully yeah I mean it's he'll be touch and go or, or, or you could say Lucas Moura I mean Moura well, yeah. could, could do a similar job. Yeah I mean we, we, we know Mourinho likes those two players and we know why because they they offer so much out of possession and you wonder whether in a game like this actually you prefer to have a player like that in a team maybe with Bale on the bench to come on for the last 20 minutes, half an hour if you need him. Um, so that, that would be the interesting thing in terms of selection. I'd say the other difference on that last game as well, Jack, is the defence just looks so much more settled this time around, this season. I, I know we've seen cho- a bit of chopping and changing. You know, Davidson Sanchez played a lot in the first sort of month, six weeks of the season and then We've not seen him anywhere near as much since West Ham. And we've seen a lot of changing at fullback. But in general, it feels like there's a little bit more identity there. There's a little bit more solidity there. Uh, and, you know, without wanting to curse them horribly ahead of a game against a decent side, it kind of feels like a lot of those calamitous moments are behind them. They look like, you know, I, I'm not saying they're the best defence in the league, even though their record actually is currently joint best. Um uh, but it kind of feels like th- th- those kind of aberrations that we saw last season are out of their system. What, what do you guys think as well? Like just thinking selection-wise, you, you mentioned there, James, about the you know whether whether you start Bale or not is, is the midfield three. And I mean, I guess it's pretty safe to assume he'll go Hoybier, Sissoko, and Dombele. I mean, that's been the favoured three and the ones worked well. I mean, would you be tempted to play Lacelso in there as well? Um, but that would probably mean taking Sissoko out. I mean, that's the you know the, the trio that everyone's desperate to see, but whether it's a little bit risky maybe for this game. Yeah, I don't think this is the game for that. I think, you know, we, we've said a few times before what Sissoko offers most of all, particularly when Spurs are out of possession, is cover, not not just for Aurier, who will play at right back, as we know, because Doherty's out with COVID. Um, and I just think in a game like this, you're really going to want to have a midfield player who's got that kind of mobility to, to nip in and, and help out right across the back foot. And I'd be amazed if Mourinho didn't see it that way. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. Everyone on Twitter is saying that Lacelso played really well for Argentina in this week. I think he got two assists last night against either Peru or Paraguay. And it, I mean, it, obviously, one of the things, one of the reasons why I'm quite confident about Spurs this season is they've been playing pretty well and getting good results without you know, the, arguably their best player from last season getting any sort of run of games. And so, if he can. If he can get fully up to speed and integrate into that midfield alongside Ndombele and Hoiberg, and I think Spurs will be in a much better position. But I do agree with you, James. I think now, now is probably not the time to bring him straight back in. I think he might. They might. It does feel like a game for Sissoko, given that City will have probably De Bruyne, Gundogan, and maybe Rodri in there. He's actually come back uh, at a bit of a bad time because I think where Lacelso will be where he was really missed and where he'll be really invaluable is those home games against deep-lying defences when you need someone to unlock a defence. Whereas, totally. whereas I'm not sure him coming back for a run of City, Chelsea away, Arsenal, Palace away, Liverpool, uh, Leicester Wolves, I'm sure he'll get plenty of minutes. Um, but there may be some of those games, and certainly, as you say, City at home and then probably Chelsea away where 
uh, Mourinho may want the, the added security of Sissoko. But who knows? I mean, Lo may just play so well that he has to be in the team. He could even play as that right-sided attacker. Um, obviously, you know, Spurs have tons of options there already. But, you know, if, if you come on and make yourself undroppable, then the manager has to find a way. Hello, I'm Ian McIntosh. And despite literally spending months of my life playing football manager, I'm still terrible at it. That's why I'm launching The Football Manager Show, the latest podcast from The Athletic. Every week, I'll speak to the people who know the game best, the people who make the game. We'll take a proper look at things like training, recruitment and tactics. We'll try to answer your questions. We'll do everything we can to keep you eager to play just one more game and altogether less inclined to quit without saving. The era of Cherno and Tonton and dear sweet Michael Duff is over. The new football manager is bigger, better, more challenging than ever. And I need some help. If you do too, you can subscribe now. Just look for the Football Manager Show by The Athletic, wherever you get all your other podcasts. It starts in November, and knowing my track record, I'll be unemployed by December. One of the most interesting things, I think, about this game is that it is another clash between Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola. Um, which is one of the great narratives, really, over the last sort of 10, 12 years of football. It's one that always gets people talking. Um, I think it's probably less of a big deal now than it was a few years ago. I remember when when Mourinho and Guardiola were reunited in Manchester uh, four years ago. It felt, it felt massive um, because it was the f- one of the first times they'd really come head-to-head since the good old days of Barcelona-Real Madrid. Um, between 2010 and 2012, um, I think some of the I think some of the kind of buzz and prestige of the rivalry has dissipated a bit since then. Uh, maybe because of the passage of time, or the fact that Mourinho probably isn't still at the top of the game in the way that he used to be. And you know, you could argue that Guardiola is no longer at the top of the game either, uh, given what's happened to City in the last 18 months or so. Um, Charlie, what's your what's your take on this? Has the has the rivalry lost its old edge, or is it still is it still box office? Is it is it still the top of the game? For, for me, what's really important to Mourinho is that now he has a team um, that can really challenge um, teams like City. Um, I, I you could tell it really hurt him, hurt his pride last season when Spurs had those injuries, and going into what would have been heavyweight games against like Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool. Guardiola City, he was really being portrayed as this underdog and his team was being portrayed as this underdog. And I know, you know, we know that Mourinho likes to be, build a siege mentality, but he also likes his teams to be respected. And they weren't even really being considered in the same breath as those sort of teams. And and Mourinho spoke and you could just hear the, the slight wistfulness in his voice about Klopp's Liverpool and the options and all of that. And so I just think now to be back... Um, you know, again, as a, on, on a level playing field with Guardiola, you know, we're talking about Spurs maybe going into this game as a slight favourite. I think that's just so important. Um, and I think he will he will relish that, you know, the fact that now he is back as, you know, their r- rivals again. And yeah, it's, it's not going to have the same fascination just because we've kind of got used to it now, certainly in this country. As you say, you know, it's four years since their first meeting um, in the Premier League. And, you know, it's never gonna 
the intensity of those classicos and you know, that was just i don't think that will ever be repeated um but it's still an interesting subplot and obviously you know for those who like the tactical philosophical side of things seeing how you know the, the teams uh, approach things um and and again that will make it really interesting you know seeing because they know each other so well so what modifications they make is Guardiola spooked by how good Spurs are on the counter? Those sort of things, you know. He, he knows that Spurs want, will be perfectly happy for City uh, to have plenty of the ball and to lay those traps that I mentioned before. Um, so it will be really interesting. But yeah, I, and and I think they are both, you know, clearly still amongst the best managers in the Premier League. Um, but as has been, you know, Guardiola last won the Champions League, Champions League in twenty eleven, um, Mourinho twenty ten. So. You know, in that respect, it's been a while, but um, yeah, still, still, certainly two of the best in this country, and, and it will be will be interesting to see how they approach it. I do wonder whether that rivalry is watered down slightly by the fact that this Spurs team probably isn't quite of the uh, like the profile of a, a classic Mourinho team in terms of like nastiness. Uh, exa- yeah, exactly. How, how nasty they are, and exactly how defensive they are. You know, if you think of like. You know, the first classic Mourinho-Guardiola games would have been those Inter-Barcelona games in 2010. In fact, I think maybe even the first time they played, maybe competitively. Uh, Ye- I, would they have played in 08-09? I don't think so. So, yeah, that would be... No, I don't think so, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, if you look at it in comparison to that end team, obviously, you know, a great team. Uh, this first team, and I'm not just talking about in terms of how good they are, I'm talking about in the way they approach football. Uh, from a sort of uh, from a sort of philosophical standpoint, it is totally different. Um, which, in a way, I suppose you could say is kind of a compliment to Mourinho in terms of him like developing the way he sees the game and trying to do things slightly differently. And again, I'm not saying it's necessarily better or worse, but it is definitely different. And I just wonder whether that is at odds with Pep's thinking less than uh, what we saw, kind mm. of. You know, in that Inter Barcelona game, and also when Mourinho was at Madrid. Yeah, I think I think I, I think what Charlie touched on is absolutely right, which is that it's not it's it is no longer the two obviously the best managers in the world. Like that was what was so amazing about Inter Barca twenty ten or the or the or the El Clasicos before Guardiola quit Barcelona was that it was clearly the two best managers in the world. And on top of that, certainly Barcelona and Real Madrid, when they had Ronaldo versus Messi, it was the two best individuals in the world. And there's never really been, I think, a rivalry like that where you had the best managers, the best players, the best squads, and two very different and diametrically opposed ideologies about style of play. And that was what made it the best. I think that that's what made it ultimately the best club rivalry of all time. You know, with all due respect to Arsenal, Manchester United in the late nineteen nineties. In the late nineteen nineties, whereas I just think that the last, I just think Mourinho's reputation has obviously taken a bit of a battering in the last sort of seven years. Like the second spell back at, even the way that Real Madrid ended, the second spell back at Chelsea, Manchester United. And the fact that he now has, I mean, the very fact that he's now at Tottenham is a sign of the fact that he's no longer at the very top of the game. And during, I remember when, back when he he came back in 2016, there was a sense that, oh, Mourinho versus Guardiola, it's going to be like Barca versus Real 2010 all over again. And yet the reality is that in the four years since Mourinho and Guardiola were both appointed, that is summer 2016, you know, Pep's won, what, two Premier Leagues. Jurgen Klopp has won a Premier League and a Champions League. Antonio Conte's won a Premier League, quit and gone to Inter. 
And Mourinho's only major trophy in that time span has been the Europa League. So he's just not even and the League Cup, even though he's been so he, even though at Man United he did have, you know, big money, big players, he just isn't quite operating at that same at that same level anymore. So it doesn't have that same kind of glitz. But what it does have, which I think you're getting at, James, is that kind of that sense of ideological opposition. Like they, they are still, I don't think that their ideologies of football have fundamentally changed that much. Like Mourinho is still, Mourinho is still very pragmatic and not about possession. And Pep is still ultimately still about possession. And that means you can have these really interesting games where Guardiola team will dominate possession and then Jose teams will kill them with their only attacks, whether that's the Bergwijn 2-0 game from earlier this year or the famous you know, City 2-0 up at halftime, Paul Pogba comeback game April 2018, which slowed down City winning the Premier League by a, week, by a few weeks. Uh, so you can have these amazing, like uh, th- these really interesting tactical clashes where Mourinho comes out on top. And I still think that Mourinho's football can be kind of kryptonite to Guardiola football, but it just isn't like the very top of the game anymore. But it's still fun. Yeah. It's still fun. This um this fixture as well gives me an excuse to bring this up because this kind of blows my mind every time. But this team, like just thinking how good that Pep uh, Pep's Barca was, they beat th- this Real Madrid team managed by a peak Jose Mourinho five nil. Casillas, Ramos, Carvalho, Pepe, Marcelo, Cadira, Alonso, Di Maria, Özil, Cristiano, Benzema. That team managed by Mourinho lost a game five nil. Like I just find that mind-boggling like that is like an all-star team from that generation and just sort of a reminder of how good Pep's Barca were at that time like it was just it was phenomenal yeah that is what you have to say about Mourinho's time at Madrid though isn't it because it coincided more or less exactly with that that Barcelona team being at their peak and yeah. even then there was a season where I think Madrid won the league and scored 100 goals wasn't yeah it, I think? they won the league in Mourinho's yeah. in uh, Pep's last season that's another really, really important point here is that Real Madrid, is that Jose's Real Madrid weren't shit. They were really, really good. And that year when they won the league, they were fantastic. Do you remember that game where... They went and beat them in the new camp. They, they won, yeah, Ozil played that incredible pass yeah. like bent round the back and Ronaldo yeah. ran onto it. He rounded the and, keeper and scored. And scored. And then he did that like calm down celebration. <laughs> that was an amazing moment. And it was like so indicative of how Mourinho's teams could also play really good football and they're like efficient punchy like counter-attacking style could um could get the better of Guardiola's Guardiola's passing football which had kind of gone a little bit mad by then when he signed Fabregas and Alexis Sanchez and they'd like lost their way a little bit so um but and what and what kind of makes I know generally speaking I've been I've been of the view that when people say oh football was better in my day that's just like a kind of like yada take on Twitter. It's like something that annoying old guys say. But I maybe now that I'm old, I, I I'm convinced it's true. <laughs> like the best, the best, like the best teams in football now are nowhere near as good as they were five or ten years ago. Like no, but were the Barcelona, best teams five or ten Barcelona, years before that better than that Barcelona team? And that's, they're not. No, were they? yeah, that's more. I, I, I don't think that's even necessarily your dad. I think that's more just acknowledging that football's cyclical. Like I don't, I don't think yeah. we're in an era of incredible uh individual teams probably but i think I mean, that's... if you look to like the late if you look at like the late 90s and i mean obviously stylistically football was completely different but yeah. you know there, there wasn't a team even sort of by contemporary standards who were anywhere near that barcelona team in the late 90s was there i don't think you mean that barcelona team of the late noughties yeah no i don't think there was no, i mean no, i, I think that team was a like era defining team they 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 were just unbelievable. Like I said, I mean, to beat that Real Madrid team five 0 I, I just don't really understand 
how anyone is capable of doing that. It just makes me a bit sad seeing now like Barcelona and Real Madrid and they're just, they've got no they got no identity. They don't even have that many good players. Whereas the Real Madrid and Barcelona teams that we're talking about here had identity and top players. And that's such an amazing combination. Having 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 a strong identity and having world-class players. And now teams have just got, they've got like, the famous teams now have got decent players, but no identity. That's why Liverpool, Bayern and to a lesser extent City are the only actually good teams at the top end of European football because they're the only teams with an identity. It's really pissed me off. Though Real Madrid's identity often just was having really good players. I mean, I, when I think of, um, you know, like the Galacticos and even to a degree, obviously Mourinho came in and sorted them out. But at that time, they still really just, th- what they were about was signing absolutely incredible players, which didn't always mean great teams, but it always meant for like a casual fan watching uh, La Liga or Sky Sports, they were just ridiculously fun to watch. You're right, but I think Marine, the Mourinho era was the only time where Real Madrid had that actual playing identity. Mm. And since then, even though they were much more successful in, in Europe under Zidane, who's won the ridiculous three Champions Leagues in a row, I kind of feel like that was just because they were quite effective and had good players who kept, who knew how to win. Whereas with Mourinho, I just felt like they had a kind of... Mourinho gave them that kind of coherence. But he obviously hasn't been able to sustain it. Although that does actually bring me on to another thing that I wanted to talk about, about Mourinho, which is why, and this is like, this is such a big question. And it's one that we've wrestled with on this podcast before. Why do you think Mourinho, Mourinho has fallen away from the top level of football in a way that Guardiola hasn't? Why do you think Mourinho's methods are not as effective as they were 10 years ago, Charlie? Maybe he hasn't adapted in the same way that Guardiola has maybe like we've touched on before given how important the psychological element was to um, Mourinho and you know it, it is so striking you know from covering from covering um, Mourinho's Tottenham I've spoken quite a lot to players who used to work with him and you know they speak about him with awe he clearly um, you know the way he got through to them and motivated them uh, has really stuck with them and had quite a profound effect. And, you know, we've touched on this and you wonder how um, how effective some of those methods are with players of 2020 and, you know, the last sort of five to 10 years. Um, you know, Mourinho has been someone who has traditionally pushed his players pretty hard and got reactions from them um, that way. And we've seen that hasn't, you know, hasn't always worked with, with the players of today. So I don't know if the psychological element is part of it um it's difficult as well you know he's still when was his last he won the title what in 2015 that was his last title yeah 2014-15 yeah which quite an easy premier league title to win then everyone else was shit yeah possibly but i mean that's still we we maybe that that normally buys a manager quite a lot of years grace and and we maybe hold him to slightly different standards because he was so explosive at uh, the start of his career. There, there may be an extent as well to which other managers have mimicked his approach and caught up. Um, you know, you think of like Arsene Wenger and how he, he he had that real competitive advantage with the scouting network and things like that. And then other teams sort of realised they should be doing that as well. So I don't know kind of tactically uh, if other teams have aped Mourinho, um, you know, and maybe, you know, and that makes it harder. But, you know, he's still... He's still pretty, uh, pretty high level, but but maybe as well. I mean, like Guardiola's show. You know, we, we talk about Guardiola still being elite, but he it's still nine years as opposed to ten for Mourinho since he won the Champions League. You know, it's not easy to keep doing that. 
Um, and in that time, Mourinho has still got achievements, like we said, of winning that 14-15 title and winning La Liga against that era-defining Barca team. Um, so I don't know. I don't know as well if it's... Miguel Delaney did that really interesting piece, didn't he, for the Indy on kind of the natural lifespan of managers. Um, and, you know, it's very hard to remain absolutely at the very pinnacle um, you know, for that long. And, and Mourinho did it really for like 10 years, 10 years plus. I mean, he if you think he won the Champions League with Porto in t- 2004 and to still be winning Premier Leagues 11 years later and now even 16 years on from that is still, um, you know, you, you would th- potentially competing for the title this year. Um, but I don't know. I mean, what do you guys think with with why that, you know, fr- from being at the very top to, to being just below has happened? It's interesting you say that actually because just, there just aren't that many managers. If you look back even at the greatest managers ever, with the obvious exception of Alex Ferguson, there just aren't many or any managers who have won big trophies over a longer period than that 11 yeah. years. I mean, yeah. I just can't, I just can't, I mean, I'm sure someone will be able to tweet us and tell us, yes, X did this in Italy in 19 whatever. And I'm sure there are others. But it is rare. It's not a thing that, that happens too often. I think there's a perception that the greatest managers are great forever, and that just isn't that just isn't the way it works. Just to go back to a thing you said earlier, Jack, and I'm curious to know what you both think about this. If Pep and Mourinho aren't are no longer the kind of two best managers in the world, and they've fallen way down the pecking order, who do we think is actually better? Because for my money, it's only really. Klopp, who you could feasi- who you can make a kind of feasible argument for being definitely better because he's got like an obviously got an established style and he's taken two two teams from a kind of lower level up to becoming like a, a, you know if not like a completely dominant force and obviously Dortmund won a couple of league titles and got to a Champions League final then he's gone to Liverpool and taken them from kind of flying around sort of fourth or fifth or worse. Uh, and made them European champions and then Premier League champions and a team who looked like they'll continue to compete for major honours for the foreseeable future. But other than that, I mean, uh, look, look, you're not going to put like Hansi Flick in that group, are you? I don't think yet. I mean, as amazing as last season, amazing as Bayern were for the was six, seven months of last season, he was in charge. Uh, and I just can't really see who else, you know. Uh, and people might think Pochettino is a better coach and if you were... A fan of any club, you might think you'd rather have Mourinho, uh, Pochettino as manager than, than Mourinho or Guardiola. But he hasn't, without wanting to open a whole new can of worms, he hasn't won the trophies that you can definitive that make him a manager. You can definitively say he is definitely the best. And who else is there? I mean, Simeone, maybe. Yeah. I'd, yeah. Say, I'd say Klopp. I think I'd probably have Klopp all by himself at the top, and then. I'd probably have Guardiola and then Simeone, I think. I think Guardiola like, I think Guardiola has definitely maintained relevance a lot more than Mourinho has. Like Guardiola has I mean it's weird, like even though City aren't great this year and they weren't they weren't they weren't great last year either, he still he still won the Premier League with two of the highest points totals of all time. And that City team from in the twenty seventeen, eighteen and twenty eighteen, nineteen seasons was incredible. With hundred, was it hundred points then ninety eight points or whatever it was, to win it? Um, I think Guardiola is now is now going to face the questions about whether or not his his methods are still relevant. Uh, you know, ten it's now what twelve years since he took over at Barcelona, and nothing lasts forever. But 
I think he has he's he has like more recent he has generated more recent credit than the Mourinho has on this point. Um, but you're right; it is generally like the scarcity of top level jobs in which managers can prove themselves does ultimately mean that it is difficult to make to make these judgments. That certainly, without wanting to kind of prolong this conversation too much further. Um, what I, or I put it another can of worms. What I would say is that obviously Guardiola has generally worked in jobs where he has had a lot of money, and I'm not suggesting he's not an incredible coach or tactician, but he's always had that to fall back on. Whereas Mourinho, particularly now, isn't working in a job where he can go out and sign, you know, the best centre back in the world for however much money he needs to spend. That I guess that's kind of a difference in terms of where they are now. Where they are now, well, that, but then that, prior to this now, job, but... yeah, Mourinho has always had that post Porto. Yeah. I mean, you look at that che- United... that, Chelsea, that Chelsea Abramovich team into United Real Madrid. Um, they've they've both been in that position, I think. At United, he had Pogba, he had Sanchez, he had Lukaku, and I know he liked to he you know he'd like to complain a bit about how much money City had, but it's not like um, you know he was in a United were a pretty strong financial position when when Mourinho is there. Um, so, but uh, yeah, you're absolutely right now that he doesn't, he doesn't have that same resources anyway. But just, just on that, uh, sorry, just one last point on this. <laughs> I know we've talked about this a lot, but I just, Mourinho touched on something really interesting last December when Ancelotti was hired Everton manager and Mourinho had just been hired uh, Spurs manager and Arsenal appointed Arteta. And, you know, he talked about now in the culture of kind of instant gratification um, and whatever, people focus so much more on the negatives of a manager than a positive and than the positive. So you're almost better coming in with like a clean slate than you are with tons of experience, because even the most experienced winning managers like Mourinho, like Ancelotti, have also obviously inevitably had tons of failures as well. And it, and it is kind of crazy when you think that, you know, most Arsenal fans wanted Arteta over Mourinho and Ancelotti. And and I get that, you know, Arteta is young and exciting, but it's kind of amazing that, you know, if you think in any other industry, you've got these two guys who are utterly proven winners. And I know they have baggage because they've both managed Chelsea and, and in Mourinho's case, there's the whole Wenger dynamic. But I just think it's really interesting that how quickly, you know, we do kind of cast these people aside as if they are yesterday's men, especially as James, you do raise that really important point. It's not like there are tons of, um, you know, really established managers who have come through and replaced them. And I guess as well, it's all, this is all slightly skewed by the fact that Zidane did win those three Champions Leagues because it means in that period, since Guardiola and Mourinho were dominating the Champions League, there's been a bit of a vacuum really because Zidane should be like an era-defining manager. What he's done is unprecedented, but He's not really seen that way. And that means very few other managers have won the Champions League in that period. Yeah, um, you, you're definitely right that there is like a cult of a young manager over the last sort of time. I think Mourinho really launched it, to yeah, be Yeah, and then Guardiola. You know, the, the Arteta yeah. is like, well, he's never managed a game before, but he could be the next yeah. Guardiola. So it's worth... Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind completely of transformed how... That's one of the reasons why... And I, 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 we're kind of going to show our age a bit here, but because I wonder whether younger listeners, I don't know if we have any listeners in their teens or 20s, but if you kind of weren't around when Mourinho first showed up, well, certainly to Chelsea in 2004, having done so well at Porto before that, 
it's like you have to remember just how incredible this was that this was a guy who you know given what most managers in england were like at that point you know this is a guy who never really played was i think about 40 years old when he took the chelsea job uh and just didn't really fit with our sense of what a manager was like and he he like he's left behind a legacy of just completely redefining what sort of things people look for in a manager i think and now like being a big personality with not much playing career and being young is now much more attractive than i think it would have been in the past where football managers were like brian horton or brian little or um people like that do you know what i mean yeah he has totally. completely changed our our sense but then it is just yeah it, it, i was watching the i was watching the clip of that the other day and think trying to trying to remember back to to what it was like and it was just so long ago like mm. it, was, it was literally during tony blair's second term i mean i remember watching Mourinho in that that fir- the second leg or the first leg sorry of when porto knocked out united and he as you say he was so young and fresh and just being like what this is so cool this guy is like nothing like a manager i've ever seen and he's knocking united out of the champions league this is mad looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Anyway, it's uh, it's time for a quiz. We've been delaying it too long, guys. You've had a pretty had a pretty bad week quiz wise for James and Charlie, but a chance to uh, chance to un- to undo some of the shame now. Um, do we need to explain that, or are you just going to let that? No, no, it's fine. Do <laughs> you want to, James? Do you want to? Well, it was a bad week for us in terms of quizzes because last week's podcast the quiz was an absolute joke. Oh, and then, very good. <laughs> and then we had an office quiz last night on Zoom, and Jack's team presumably cheated somehow. I don't know quite how. Well, we won. Uh, have you well, have you did. submitted like your internet history so that we can see if there was any Google searches? I, you know, in the yeah. in interest of transparency, if you've got nothing to hide, I don't think that's unreasonable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, uh, yeah. Well, James's team came what third, and Charlie's team came second last. Anyway, the the list is on here about about my quiz triumph. Uh, well, the, they want to hear you to submit. Uh, going through what I hope will be a better organised quiz than what we did last week. So, it couldn't, couldn't possibly be any worse. No, well, I've actually put a bit of work into it this time. Uh, so, as you probably know, there is a select group of players who are lucky enough to have played for both Pep Guardiola uh. and Jose Mourinho. I think there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 players who I think have played for both teams. Um the, the- the words that worry me there are, I think. Yeah. Well, the, <laughs> Let's the ones see how we go. The ones that I've got on this, the ones I've got written down here are definitely correct. If you've got any others, then we can argue about that later. <laughs> uh, I think we'll do, it's not strict elimination. So if you get one, we'll do alternate guesses. If you get what, if you say one who isn't wrong, who who is not a correct answer, then I'll write that down, but it won't necessarily be held against you. And I guess that, that kind of sets it all up. I, I hope you understand how it works. It should be quite simple. Uh, who wants to go first? James, you were just mean about me, so I think we'll let Charlie go first this time. Thank you. Joe Hart. Yes, Joe Hart is probably the most 
must be like the most recent addition to this list, having played for Guardiola very briefly at City before Guardiola realised he couldn't pass the ball, and now for Mourinho at Tottenham. Well, then I will go for the player who is presumably the second most recent addition, Pierre-Emerick Hoiberg. Yes, Hoiberg, of course, started out at Bayern with Guardiola and now plays for Mourinho at Spurs. Can I just say, I think it's the first time I've said his first name out loud. That's why I nearly said Pierre-Emerick. Yeah, you really stumbled over that. There's too many Pierre's. So, next to me, Sam Oletto. Yep, played for Barca and then very well at Inter, where he won. Didn't he won the treble at both teams, didn't he? Yeah, in consecutive seasons. Yeah. Oof. Um, oh, who? Uh, uh, Arjun Robin. Yes, played for Jose at Chelsea back in the day, and then for Pep at Bayern. Very well. Well done, guys. Xabi Alonso. Yes, legend at Real Madrid for Jose and then joined Pep at Bayern. Uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Yes, famous for preferring Mourinho to Guardiola, who he said treated him like a schoolboy uh, when they were together at Barca. Um, Sesk. Yep, played for Barca uh, with Pep at the end and then. Went, was very, very good for Jose at Chelsea, winning the 2014-15 Premier League title. I, I was going to... So my, my next answer is, my, is like a follow-up to Zlatan. And now I, I'm really doubting myself now because I was just going to say it, but now I just can't remember him actually playing for Guardiola. And now I'm really worried this is wrong, but I'm going to say Maxwell. So I've got Maxwell on my list. I think that's correct. Okay. Uh, Where did he... I, have, I mean, I haven't have, seen him said this about no. Where did he put... Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 he did. Yeah, I think yeah. Maxwell is right, although I don't. Isn't, remember, isn't I don't he the most decorated player him. in European football or world football? He's won more than anybody else. No, yeah, I think I, the most decorated player in world football is oh, who I'm going to say. No, oh, not Dani Alves. No, okay. Pedro. Oh, that is right. No, I think Pedro might have won. He's won everything. More I different. Think. He's won more different trophies. I think. Yeah. I just tried to Google Maxwell to find out, and all the answers that came up were Gislaine Maxwell. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> not Maxwell from Big Brother. No, that's no. a great shout. Yeah, yeah. So we're on four. But he's a moment. big Arsenal nope. fan, so he shouldn't be mentioned on this. Uh, that, on that, this that is true. Yeah. No incorrect answers so far. I think we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven who haven't been picked yet. You serious? I've got, I've got a good one. Is it me or Charlie? Yeah. Now? It's Charlie. Uh, no, so I just did done Pedro. Oh, so it's... oh sorry. Uh... Oh, sorry, you did Pedro. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Pedro, of course, is correct. So it's now back to James. Eidegger Johnson. Eidegger Johnson is correct. Great player. Chelsea and Barcelona. Um, must, must be one of the first people to fulfil... Must be one of the first people to, for whom this has been true, in the sense that he played, for Chelsea, he played for the first era of Jose at Chelsea, and then the first era of... Or, like, then was playing for Barcelona when Pep was appointed in 2008. But he did that journey, yeah. Um... De Bruyne. Yes, like famously didn't really do anything under Mourinho at Chelsea, was oh, sold yeah. to Wolfsburg and has now been incredible, the best midfielder in Europe under Guardiola at City. And it's now back to James. We've got, I've got, looking here, I've got one, uh, let me just underline the remaining ones on my list. One, two, three, I've got four left, I think, here. One of them is... 
yeah, these are pretty. The ones left are pretty hard, to be honest. So I, I feel like, without wanting to give a quote, if I'm right, I feel like the kind of the the, the central point of this, it, the pivot, is that Bayern team. I feel like there are more players in that team that have played for Mourinho in different places. So you said Alonso, didn't you, Charlie? Alonso's and gone, yeah. Robin. Schweinsteiger. Yes. Great, Great shout. shout. Schweinsteiger obviously played for Bayern under Pep and then went to Mourinho's United and played a little bit, not very well, and then went to MLS. Alexis um, Sanchez. Alexis Sanchez, yes, another one oh, who another, another one who played badly for Mourinho's United. In this in his case having played for Guardiola's Barcelona. Uh, so that is Charlie's seventh point. We, what I love about this, we haven't had an incorrect answer yet. You guys have been immaculate. All the penalties have been, they've all been bottom corner. <laughs> so now it reverts to James. And we've got two names left on the board here. I've got okay, one, well, I think. Do, do you want me to kind of stumble a bit for dramatic effect? No, I go for it. Say. I don't know, it's right. Gladio Pizarro. That's the Gladio one. Pizarro is correct. So, uh, this is amazing. We have uh, obviously played for he played for Chelsea back in the day under Jose, and then uh, for Bayern under Guardiola. Uh, I think he's now in something like his seventh spell at Werder Bremen at the age of forty-six. Also, <laughs> it's not quite that, but it's like that. Uh, okay, so we have one player left, and I think this is the hardest player on. If I hadn't looked, if I hadn't been like looking this up in preparation for this podcast, I don't think I would have got this. But it is the case. Uh, I'm going to give a clue. And that's that he has played only a very small number of games for each manager. I think probably certainly less than 10 for each, maybe more like five-ish for each. Um, uh, but yeah, there's one wow. one name left on my list. Uh, I don't really know how to how to play this. I think I think basically you've both won because you've both got you both got seven points each. So I think you share the trophy. um, We'll share the charity shield like Arsenal and Spurs did in 91. But for pure tie-break thrills, there is what... I've got one name left on the board. Um, God, give give us another clue. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so the first clue is that he's played a very small number of games for each. The second clue, which might make it a bit easier, is that... That's the point of it. Yeah, is that he he is currently playing for either Mourinho or Guardiola. Uh, Ah, this is... Not sure. You might have to put us out of our misery, Jack. Okay. He's coming up. I'm trying to come up with another clue. Um, I mean... Is it like a Rodri well, okay, well, or a Cancelo? It's not Cancelo. It's not Rodri. But it, it is a recent. It is a recent Manchester City signing. Is it Torres? No, oh, yeah, it's not Torres. Torres. Keep going through. It's another Manchester City signing from this Diaz. summer. Not Diaz, although Mourinho <laughs> did try and sign him for Tottenham. It's another Manchester City signing from this summer. Not Diaz. Not Torres. The other one. The other player who City signed this summer, who played. Okay. For- Nathan Ake, yeah. 
Played for Mourinho. Oh, oh, Played for Mourinho yeah. at Chelsea. Uh, oh, Mourinho, second fell at Chelsea. Uh, Nathan Aki was there as a youth teamer. Played a handful of games in the first team before he started getting loaned out to Reading or whatever else. Um, huh. And he's now playing for Guardiola at City. So Nathan Aki is the final answer to this quiz. I think, guys, I think you can both be really proud of yourself. I think you have undone the shame of last night. Uh, <laughs> and if you're still listening Love to the it. podcast at home, uh, you know, I, I applaud your... Uh, I applaud you for sticking with us for so long. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. I really enjoyed reading your piece with the great Raphael van der Vaart the other day. Uh, what was he like to talk to? Uh, he was so much fun. Uh, yeah, it was one of those interviews just really enjoyed doing. Um you know, I'm sure you've you've both had. You, sometimes you interview someone and you're kind of thinking like, oh, what am I going to write about here? Um, whereas this was kind of the opposite of that. There's just so much good stuff from like the first minute. He was really engaging, a really good talker. Um, it was fun. You know, we watched clips of some of his best bits for Spurs, and he was really interesting on a number of levels. Like his memory is amazing. Um, you know, he remembers most of his goals really well, and he can talk to them both from a kind of emotional standpoint and he's got a really nice turn of phrase but also from a technical standpoint as well like he he clearly analyzes his game quite closely and has quite an appreciation of his strengths and weaknesses and just a really good character and talked about you know the fun he had off the pitch and how he wouldn't be cut out for 2020 football he says it's you know far too serious now and the fact that you can never have a drink after a game or and you have to constantly watch what you eat and all of this stuff um so yeah he was really fun and i think he you know he is someone who spurs fans just really connected with uh very very quickly and that connection existed and still exists for him because he still talks really really fondly you know best couple of years of his career despite you know he played for real madrid and he got to world cup final with holland and things like that so um yeah i was really looking forward to it beforehand and um i really enjoyed doing it James, you must have loved reading it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if this was just sort of recency bias of having read the interview with him, but I definitely think he's one of, if not my favourite Spurs player ever. I mean, he just has he just combines those two qualities of 
being uh, like technically absolutely incredible, like really great to watch, great, you know, great, a fun player, but also having that sort of little bit of uh, devilment, as the great Tim Sherwood once said in him. You know, he wasn't afraid to put himself about a bit, and he was happy to do a little bit of shit housing when it was uh, when it was required. And obviously, between nutmegs on Jack Wilshire, as mentioned in the piece, which uh, was obviously always going to go down well. So yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was a very exciting signing when he first arrived, and it, it kind of came out of nowhere, as everybody knows. It was a bit of a bolt from the blue on the last day of the window, uh, and he hit the ground running, made a massive difference to that team. I think particularly in terms of his mentality, which again, that, that kind of really comes across in that piece as well. He he is a winner, um, even though actually, as it turns out, he didn't actually win that many trophies in his career, unfortunately. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it was a huge, huge favourite of mine, and even as a staunch defender of AVB as I am I think getting shot of him quite so quickly was probably a mistake yeah Vadovac called that a slap in the face and it still irks him clearly to this day that um that AVB did that so early on I think in football ultimately you want more you want, you want more Van der Vaart than, AB, than AVB I love <laughs> right, what you yeah, saying yeah. About, about um how he just wouldn't fit in with with modern football like it's uh it's, it's it is a bit of a sign of really how much how much football's changed in the last sort of 10, 15 years that uh, that a player who's like a kind of kind of like a sort of number ten who doesn't really do much defending but will give you goals and assists and is maybe not the most like fit professional player is now so it's now basically kind of outmoded really at the top level and even the number tens who do exist like a kind of De Bruyne or Ericsson, are you know really good athletes who work really hard and do all the defensive legwork and they're just much more like complete. They're much more complete players than the kind of throwback number 10 of the kind of Totti, Laudrup, Baggio type uh, Van der Vaart. Uh, so kind of 90s player. And like Van der Vaart was ultimately a 90s player. Maybe that's true of Ozil. Maybe the decline of Ozil at Arsenal is the best example of that kind of the kind, you know, the the decline in the number ten. I know this is something that Coxie's written about a fair bit for the Athletic as well. Mm. I mean, I think that was obviously AVB's thinking, yes, wasn't it? That he he didn't think that the team could accommodate a player who essentially couldn't run for ninety minutes. Um, yeah. Uh, but the irony of that, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, is that he tried to replace him with Gilfie Sigurdsson, who I'd say probably would put in that bracket as well, or certainly more in that bracket than the kind of all action pressing lunatic bracket but also just in the like the off the pitch stuff I mean I touched on it before but he gave some great quotes and he says um, if you were playing now he says now I'd have to say after a few years sorry I'm born in the wrong time it's crazy I remember Wijnaldum and Van Dijk when they won the Champions League with Liverpool they were interviewed on Dutch television and the guy asked so tonight champagne they were like no 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 in five days we have the Nations League finals five days van der vaart laughs i would be pissed already during the interview but that's the mindset they have now and i don't think they need it so it's just like yeah i think he uh you know he talks in the interview about how he liked after a good win he'd have a few drinks he'd have the old mcdonald's all of this sort of stuff he talked funnily about how sometimes after the game you know he'd have a mcdonald's or a pizza or a glass of wine or whatever and for the last 20 he'd be thinking like come on just get through the game and you'll uh, you'll get that drink or you'll get that burger or whatever um it's just a very different uh you know it's only 10 years but it does make football seem uh, like a bit of a different world and and it's probably the hinge point i guess when football was becoming the kind of uber professional uh industry that it is now and and also like you say jack that now you know all players are just otherworldly athletes and van der vaart was otherworldly 
with his technique and the goals that he scored, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't like one of these perfectly sculpted specimens like they all are now. Um, and so I think that helped with the relatability. And that's partly why, as James said, he is for so many, you know, one of their favorite, if not their, the favorite of the last 10, 20 years. Yeah, it's uh, it's, a really, it's a really good in- interview. I'm sure any Spurs fans who haven't read it yet, I would totally recommend reading it. Something that Spurs fans might not enjoy quite so much, but if you want to torture yourself, uh, there's, we've just done a really good piece on uh, Saul Campbell's move from Tottenham to Arsenal, um, looking at the history of what happened and why. And um, yeah, I, we've already had some reaction. I we had a, a tweet from a Spurs fan saying, "I spent all morning reading this, and now I'm really upset." Uh, so if you want to uh, if you want to upset yourself, then or just or just to kind of luxuriate in the misery of a bad moment in Tottenham Hotspur history, uh, I could. Rec- yeah, you you might enjoy it in a perverse way, I suppose. We could read, you could read it and think of that wouldn't happen now, right? That you know, yeah, one of Tottenham's be- better players wouldn't now go to Arsenal. I don't think. No, no. I mean, I, be- I, I mean, I'll touch wood when I say that, and obviously, I don't want to curse that. But you would hope that, as the way things stand at the moment, that that wouldn't be something that would happen immediately. What I will say about that Sol Campbell thing, um, it is having watched the highlights of that. The first game back, his first game back at White Hart Lane in 2001, he put in a really bad, like, two-footed challenge on uh, Gus Poyer in the first, like, kind of 20 minutes of the game. He should have been sent off. By modern standards, that would have been VAR and he would have been off. So, I mean, you know, he'd consider himself lucky, really. That's the real story. That's the real story. <laughs> yeah, coming up next week, the inside story of that tackle on Gus Poyer. That nightmare tackle. Have you guys got any other memories of Saul Campbell you want to share? Well, that, that, save that, for next that, time? that game kind of does highlight how fast Spurs have come, actually, because uh, I suppose they actually played quite well, and I didn't really remember that until watching the highlights. Um, but what I do remember is being massively relieved and delighted that uh, Spurs drew the game at home to Arsenal 1 1, where, you know, I mean, I think a derby game is still the kind of game you're desperate not to lose rather than necessarily desperate to win. But I think to be that happy to draw a home 1-1 to, to Arsenal, I think is probably an indication. You know, If you compare that to now, I would probably be quite underwhelmed if Spurs were at home with Arsenal now, let's put it that way. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very different era. Um, anyway, guys, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, thank you very much for sticking with us this long. Uh, thank you very much, James and Charlie, uh, for doing so well on the quiz. And thank you, producer Tom. Uh, we'll be back uh, at our normal time earlier next week where we will look back on Tottenham against Man City, which, of course, is Saturday evening, and then looking forward to Tottenham Ludogorets Thursday evening in the Europa League, and then Tottenham's trip to Stamford Bridge next Sunday evening on the 29th of November, uh, which which is going to be a great game as well. So we're really right in the midst of a very busy and exciting time for Spurs at the moment. As ever, if there's anything else that you want us to talk about next week's pod or anything you didn't like this week's pod, then please just tweet us and tell us. 